Welcome to Thriller Premium. Welcome to Thriller Premium. In-depth coverage and timely analysis of macro and micro happenings in crypto. Welcome to Thriller Insider. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls from around the world, gather around. It's time for another Thriller Insider. Today is October 21st, 2019, and we are talking yield curve inversions. And I actually recorded this this past weekend because I thought it was significant enough to where most people aren't really paying attention to something that is as simple as a inverted yield curve, right? Now, there's been entire talk that we've done on previous episodes about the United States recession and possibly global recession happening here in the next 12 to 18 months. But before we get into all of that, let's first talk about inverted yield curve. What is it? Well, to understand what an inverted yield curve is, you must first understand one of the most basic financial asset classes out there, bonds, right? This is something that I had no idea about before I got into (laughs) cryptocurrency and how money supply worked. Now, a bond is like an IOU. That's right, an IOU. That's right, given to you by a bank when you lend the bank money to give you back that same amount at a later time along with a fixed amount of interest. So, for example, if you bought a two-year bond for $100 with a 2% annual return on it, that means you'll get $104 back after two years. Now, this accounts for many things, right? First off, 2% annually (laughs) on $100, it's pretty good, right? Not to mention that inflation goes up about 2% every year. Now, with that low return rate, Bonds have a number of benefits that justify the small rate of return. They're an extremely stable investment. This is especially true when it comes to government bonds. The only way you can lose money with them is if the government defaulted on its loans, which we know the United States government has never done. They guaranteed to have a return. That's right. This means that you'll know exactly how much you're getting on your ROI when you purchase a bond. So, like we said before, on this $100 with a 2% annual return for a two-year bond, you're getting back an ROI of $4.04. Now, one of the other likely benefits of utilizing bonds is the longer investments yield higher returns. So, the longer you're willing to wait on your bond typically means that you're going to have a higher return. So I say typically because there are exceptions to this hint, and I think you're starting to understand how the yield curve inversions happen. When people refer to inverted yield curves, they're referring to the yields of United States Treasury bonds or bonds guaranteed to investors by the U.S. government. Now, 
is you're starting to get a clearer picture of why this is important, right? Not to mention last month, repo markets were at it again. We'll get to that. But it looks like the Fed is going to start buying bonds again. And it's not just a stimulus effort. They will resume the expansion of its balance sheet soon. They just don't want you to call it quantitative easy. Uh, before we get into all of that, let's let's get into what happened, right? So overnight banking funding, was a, there was a sudden rise that happened in September. Federal Chairman Jerome Powell said Tuesday that the central bank will begin increasing its securities holdings to maintain an appropriate level of reserves. He said this should be viewed as a technical adjustment and different from the large-scale asset purchases the central bank undertook to stimulate the economy in 2008. So don't worry. Don't look over here. Everything's under control. (laughs) And he said this uh, back at the National Association of Business Economists in Denver. So this move that they decided to do was to give the Fed ample reserve so they can operate policies that we've seen be established in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, right? So the central bank controlled the federal funds rate and its primary policy target by establishing the interest it pays on bank reserves. Before the financial crisis in 2008, the Fed would control the Fed funds rate through open market operations the purchases and sales of securities to maintain a scarcity of reserves. Now the Federal Reserve's balance sheet has begun growing again because the central bank recently had to conduct repurchase agreements, operations, or repos to ease the liquidity crunch in overnight lending markets. This is big. (laughs) This is big, right? Some market observers are calling the Federal Reserve's recent commitment to buy billions of dollars of U.S. Treasury bills, quantitative easing for basically the start of a fourth round of so-called quantitative easing, meaning to boost a flagging economy that has an inverted yield curve, right? So the underlining problem was this systemic shortage of money, right? And the Fed officials went on the offensive saying that, hey, everything's fine with the banking system. We just need more reserves to help out with these central banks. In reality, the system was operating on a knife edge where small changes in the quantity of reserves generated large changes in price. Federal officials wrongly believe the banking system was flush, right? They made a mistake. So what does this inverted yield curve suggest now? Because as a couple weeks ago, We were down and now we're back up. It's been fixed, right? Wrong. (laughs) Uh, We could always see a double dip. And that's something that is likely possibly going to happen. We'll have to wait and see. But before we even get into all of that, let's find out where we exactly are. What we have by any measure is the greatest wealth gap since the 30s. In the United States, the top one-tenth of one percent of the population has a net worth that's approximately equal to the bottom 90 percent. And so we have a large wealth gap. China's got a large wealth gap. And, this, and then with that, we have the political and the uh, greater polarity. And so not the greatest polarity since the 1930s. So 
Uh, and we have a, a, a situation where we don't have much of an ease of ability to ease monetary policy. And then also, like the 1930s, that's why I think it's a point of comparison, is we have a rising power challenging an existing world power in the form of China-US challenges. And as men, and I, we talk about these things regularly, like we said, there are four kinds of war. Men said, and we agree, there's a trade war, there's a technology war, um, there's a currency capital war, and there is um, a geopolitical war. In other words, n n so that's a phenomenon that's happening at the same time. So internally, we have a lot more conflict. So now if you play that out, you say this cycle is not, this is the best that we get, this moment. We are at the best. The cycle is not going to continue forever, the expansion. You have this sad. Then you have elections and you have politics, which becomes greater extremity. And so on monetary policy, it's not going to be so effective. Imagine if you had a downturn and you have not as effective monetary policy. Then there has to be coordination. So how do you get coordination in this kind of political environment? You have to have a coordination between fiscal and monetary policy to be able to do something. And, you can, and then you have to have coordination between the various factors to make decisions on what policy should be. So I think that that's the landscape, broadly speaking, in the world. And we are in that kind of self-reinforcing sag because as one country, as China slows and the United States slows and they all have their headwinds, that makes it um, not as good for the others who deal with those countries. So that look, that's what the environment looks like to me. So not only do you have these data-driven metrics that are showing us exactly that a recession is happening here in the next 12 to 18 months, but you have Ray Dalio informing the IMF at their annual meeting in 2019 about how he views the economy, how he views the global macroeconomics that are at stake, right? So all this is going on and then these repos hit. But even then, you have these two kind of um, happenings, right? Because there's so many moving pieces. But it's not until you understand what's happening as far as corporate debt. And so Raul Powell, he has an amazing library called Real Vision. It's a website. I highly recommend it. He talks about this upcoming recession, but he not only hits these same data-driven points that a lot of us hit that don't fully understand how many pieces are actually at play, uh, he kind of goes on this rant that just talks about, just like lays it on the table exactly what's broken, why so many factors are at play. He kind of sounds like me during coin, coin talk. <laughs> like he understands, like me personally, I understand the crypto market so well that I can just ramble on for hours about the space and tell you what ifs and this scenario, that scenario. Like I understand it really, really well. Uh, he's kind of like that. But when it comes to actual uh, real uh, financial economies that happen to take place across the entire world. And this this talk that he gives is, is quite amazing because he touches on so many different points that not only Ray Dalio touched on, but he gives you kind of more insights into how they function and why one and the other are quite not the same, but they influence each other. Take a listen. But you see, what turns 
a slowdown, and we started to see the slowdown happening in December. We started volatility rising again in the equity market, and we started to see the bond market rallying like crazy, the yield curve inverting super fast all across the curve, is what then happened is what you normally need to turn what looks like something like 2015 into a much higher probability of being a recession is the extraneous event, and that was trade wars. See, trade wars are not what everybody thinks. There was a lot of noise about them, and at first, people weren't sure what Trump was going to do. But he first went after the Chinese, then he went after the Europeans, and then he's been going around after the Canadians and the Mexicans, and then he's done a deal with the Mexicans, and he's done a deal with the Canadians. But trade wars are happening, and China, the Chinese situation is very, very complicated. And with Europe too, we haven't got anywhere in the Europe negotiations yet. You see, the problem is, is his aggressive negotiating tactics have created a knock-on effect that most people don't understand. If you are a corporate and you have this game of cat and mouse with China and the US about not only normal trade, but also about technology and the banning of technology to stop technology spreading, there is a definite move within the US administration to really isolate China in numerous ways, but particularly economically. But don't forget, we've just come from the most globalized world we've probably ever had. So if we back up maybe six years, we're the epicenter of globalization, and everybody has decided that China is the future. All the big corporations around the world, whether it's BMW or General Electric, have all moved to China. They're building factories, they're outsourcing, and they have supply chains. Suddenly, they're being told, well, you don't know whether those supply chains are gonna stay. You don't know whether you can actually stay in China, or maybe even the Chinese end up booting you out. You don't know whether you can produce cars in Mexico or not. It's really confusing, because is Trump gonna go back against what he's just done with the Mexicans? What happens with the Canadians? How does that work? Is there any labor arbitrage anymore in a world where he's even going after Vietnam, a country so small to be irrelevant to stop the Chinese circumventing trade tariffs? He's also manipulating OPEC, and you don't really know where this world is. And you know, no doubt there'll be a time when he'll start picking on India as well. So he's picking on all of the countries in the world, and that's all well and good, and I've talked about this on Real Vision before, is um, a shift away from globalization is not the end of the world, it is the shift itself, the rate of change that matters. That rate of change is incredibly unsettling for corporate America, particularly, and the global corporations, the multinationals. Almost across every boardroom around the world right now as a conversation is, can we outlast Trump? And that's a bet. If we don't, we've got hell to pay with our shareholders. If something happens and we don't have an answer, we're in trouble. Well, okay, we'll build some inventory. So everybody's built inventory just to give them some sort of buffer. And now they need to make the decision, do we pull the plug now or do we wait? Wait and see whether Trump goes, wait and see whether there's any option. So those two outcomes are really interesting to me. Because if you pull the plug now, you break the global supply chains. That's happening everywhere. We've seen the announcement from Apple this week alone that they're doing it. The others decide, well, we'll wait and see. So what does that really mean? That means corporate expenditure stops. They tend to then spend a fortune on somebody like McKinsey or KPMG or somebody else who's going to give them the advice on building new global supply chains, bringing their business back to the US. It's a two, three, or four-year project before they make the choice of where they're going to spend and rebuild their, their supply, their factories, and all of this stuff. 
So that generally means there's a big crimp on, borrow, on, on um, spending that comes from corporations, particularly in um, FDI. So that's going to hurt several countries around the world, particularly China, but there's a lot of countries and a lot of companies who are going to see this spending freeze and have to wait and sit it out. So that is going to have the effect of lowering growth. And I think that is what tipped this situation from a merely a slowdown that was looking nasty into a, for me, an almost certain recession. So the question is, is where are we now? Many of you will remember I used to use the ISM as my main way of looking at the business cycle. I don't use it much more anymore because it kind of got a bit broken. And the reason it got a bit broken was not because of Fed manipulation or anything else. It's because the oil sector became so large that the oil price became the largest influence of the ISM itself, particularly the refinery cycle every year. So I shifted away to the ECRI, and that's the Economic Cycles Research Institute measure, and it's a weekly indicator. And I use the year-on-year -year return of the weekly indicator to give me the business cycle. It works very much like the ISM, and it correlates with everything like GDP. So you see the chart here of um, ECRI with uh, quarterly GDP, and you can see how well correlated it is. It's indicating that we've got some weakness to come. Okay, so that's the first interesting point. Then I like to put the ECRI against a number of other indicators that may be forward-looking. And this is where it gets interesting. I'm going to show you a whole series of charts now for you to look at. So this chart is the CAS Freight Shipments Index. You can see how dramatically freight shipments have fallen and how much they're suggesting that the ECRI could fall from here and therefore the uh, GDP as well. Car loadings, a similar way of looking at transportation, it's collapsing. Capital goods orders, these are the big ticket items, the things that a lot of times you use financing for or are involved in the global supply chains. You can see how they are rolling over as well and following ECRI lower. If you believe in this supply chain story and it seems to be bearing itself out in the press almost daily, then you've got to imagine that capital goods orders are going to come lower. But households are also struggling with the, with the rates. So you've seen that in how much car sales have fallen. So car sales have languished and they're expected to go further. Clothing sales have collapsed in recent months as well, which has been an extraordinary move. And restaurant sales as well have been extremely weak. So you're starting to see not only is shipping and moving goods around weak, but you're also seeing a weakness in the consumer and a weakness in business expenditure. Another great global indicator I've looked at is semiconductor sales. Semiconductor sales are extraordinarily weak right now, and they too are suggesting the global business cycle has a lot further to fall. Back in the US, we've also got the housing cycle. It looks like that the, um, the Case-Shiller House Index is starting to weaken significantly and is now at the weakest level since before the previous recession. And we also have weakness in house prices overall and construction. So. I'm concerned that all parts of the economy are showing evidence of weakness. And I know many people say, well, unemployment's not. Unemployment's strong. Unemployment, interestingly enough, is the most lagging of all indicators. And just remember that every time the Fed cut rates and unemployment was below 4%, we went to a recession almost immediately afterwards. They're all lagging. So don't get trapped in the, in the unemployment, look at the forward-looking indicators, and they're looking problematic. So those are just some of the US indicators that I'm finding concerning. 
there is a general theme of weakness that lies ahead. And if you go back to that first chart I showed you of the two-year on two-year rate of change of LIBOR of interest rates, then you're going to expect to see equity come down further and all of these things that are correlated come down further. Also, don't forget the equity correlates perfectly to asset prices. If you look at the year-on-year S&P, it basically is the business cycle. Now, I understand that equity prices as part of the equity calculation, but I can use hard data and a bunch of other variations of the business cycle, and they all show the same thing. The equity market is cyclical. Right now, just because of the construction of what it was doing last year, it's at all-time highs. It should actually significantly weaken in October, November, if the equity stays where it is. But in the US, now, over 50% of the entire bond market is triple B. Triple B is essentially one large notch above junk bonds. It used to be a world where there was a lot of triple A credit, double A credit, they're all falling by the wayside. What you're getting is everybody taking so much debt that they're becoming triple B. And all of the main bulk of American large cap firms are now triple B debt. And then beneath that, you've got a trillion dollars. So you've got four trillion dollars of, of um, triple B and you've got a trillion dollars of junk. That junk alone is the largest the junk bond market's ever been, but the real growth in this whole thing has been the triple B sector. You can see from this chart that if we put all the different types of bonds in a nice stack next to each other, the size of the triple B market is absolutely enormous. And when you break down the US triple B debt market, you can also see it's pretty lumpy. There are five large beer moths that account for $770 billion of debt. And if you add in the US shale industry, you're talking about a trillion dollars of debt. Those companies are General Electric, General Motors, AT&T, Ford, and Dell. They account for everything here. It's huge. You're, obviously, there's a massive tier of corporations behind it that are triple B, but really, the risk comes down to five big firms. Just to understand how leveraged these companies are, here's the chart of debt to equity. General Electric is over 200% debt to equity. General Motors, 250. AT&T, about 100%. Ford, about 450%. And Dell, about 125%. AT&T is the largest, the most indebted company the world has ever seen. It is $170 billion in debt, and it's over 100% of market cap in debt. That dynamic can change dramatically if the share price falls. It's digested an enormous acquisition in Time Warner. And if you remember, AOL Time Warner was ringing the bell at the top of the last cycle. It kind of feels like AT&T Time Warner may be ringing the bell for this cycle too. And it was a debt orgy that allowed to do it because AT&T thought, fine, you know, we're a phone company. We get plenty of cash. The problem is, is corporate cash flow is correlated to the business cycle. If you look at the ECRI and look at S&P cash flow, you see they're highly correlated. So what looks affordable acquisition now suddenly becomes unaffordable later. If that starts to happen, then you've got a problem. And you've got a problem because, look, AT&T is not going bust. Well, at least I don't think so. But it's going to get downgraded to junk. There is no way on earth the junk bond market can take a downgrade like AT&T. Realistically, if you start to get in a recession, you should see, I don't know, 10, 20% of these triple Bs get downgraded. So we're talking huge numbers that have to get absorbed into that junk space. But there's only a trillion dollars there. 
and the buyers are different. And this is a crucial thing here. The buyers of junk bonds are not the same buyers as the buyers of investment grade credit. Those buyers of investment grade credit will have to sell if it gets downgraded. So that means that there is a huge amount of selling, but the people in the junk bond market don't have 30% more, 40% more cash suddenly to buy this stuff. So the only way of doing it is by obliterating the junk bond market. So if these get downgraded in any way, shape or form, you're going to find that the junk bond market becomes completely insolvent. But what's worse here is if you look at the debt that's coming up, it's a complete wall of the stuff that needs to be renewed over what looks like it's going to be the next recession. That's going to be a huge problem to try and roll all this financing that all comes due at the same time when the banks aren't going to be particularly keen on letting this financing out and the companies are going to be desperate to get it but their cash flows are going to be going down so the affordability becomes a little more problematic even with rates being cut. This is why the Fed need to cut rates and need to cut rates fast because this corporate thing is an avalanche waiting to happen and the butterflies flapped its wings and the avalanche is starting to crumble. But you see this issue is not just the US as I mentioned a couple of times, it's global. When we look at the global corporate debt to GDP, we're at 95%. This is the same kind of la-la land levels that we had on household debt back in 2008. There is an extraordinary amount of corporate debt and the worst thing about it, almost all of it is in US dollars. Globally, it's in US dollars except in Europe and that's all trading at negative yields now because it's European debt that can be used as collateral that has a huge value for the system that's slightly insolvent. So we've got a huge problem because if you think about that, it's globalized and it's in dollar funding and there's not enough dollars around, certainly not to roll all of this debt, particularly if the banking system in Europe is going to desperately be sucking for these dollars. We've got a big funding issue to come. And again, if the dollar starts going higher, it becomes a much bigger problem for all of these corporates to deal with and a big, big problem for the junk bond market to deal with overall and the investment grade market. See, I'm not the only one talking about this. Stan Druckenmiller has been talking about it. There's a number of people who've talked about it. And the BIS and the IMF have both warned about it, much like they did ahead of the 2008 recession. They're saying there's a huge problem with corporate indebtedness. There's a huge problem with the buybacks. There's a huge problem with the dynamics that it's creating. And this is the thing. It's the knock-on effects that I'm really worried about in this whole equation. A credit event, okay. A secular credit event, really nasty. But with a couple of other things thrown in, like a retirement crisis, then we've got something really, really concerning that we have to avoid. The Fed have to be really aggressive in this, or we've got a much bigger problem than we realized. You see, the Bond market is supporting the equity market, as I talked about before. It's all the buybacks. So here's the graph of the buybacks that I talked about before. They're basically supporting the whole market. So if the corporate bond market gets a little bit tighter and cash flows go, all of the corporates are going to stop buying equity. The largest buyer will have left the room very quickly. So let's go through the causation here. Equity widens. It starts falling south for all the reasons I've talked about. It starts widening out the spreads. As soon as the spread starts widening out, corporate cash flows start going with equity and Corporates start going, okay, I need to be careful here. So what they do is they stop buying back shares. So that's the largest equity market buyer who's left the room. So that's a really big deal. So let's go back to the equity chart with the year on year S&P. If the equity falls and this credit cycle falls, then the S&P is going to fall with it in the year on year terms and also in outright terms. 
So we're setting ourselves up for something that could be quite interesting. Now, we know that consumer confidence is pretty much tied to the equity market right now. And so if the equity market starts falling because the buybacks have gone, then it's gonna build on itself. And then it's gonna build itself in a way that's going to bring out the baby boomers. So there's another issue here. We had a guest on Real Vision who talked about the corporate bond market and the pension system. You see, I've talked about the pension system a lot, and I'll come on to that in a sec again, but the pension system has been a bar of equity, but increasing bar of corporate bonds because there's been some yield there. And also as you get an aging population and people are getting closer to retirement, you need more bonds, but they need to take as much risk as possible. So they've bought a ton of junk and a ton of this triple B stuff. So they've been the big buyers. So he talks about corporate bonds and it's interesting to me because not only did Ray Dalio talk about the global economy as a whole, but some of the people at the IMF asked Ray Dalio a question about corporate bonds. And here you have Raul giving you actual answers uh, that he deems to be true that are being told from him from insiders. And then you have Ray Dalio giving you a completely different message. Take a listen. We can make choices as to how much pain we want to take and when we want to take it, which we did after the financial crisis of 08-09. The, the risk is that there are imbalances that build up that mean we lose the chance to make those choices. And we end up, you've, talked to, you've given us a lot of tinder for a fire here. May I ask you, since you know financial markets so well, the IMF has warned about corporate leverage and the $17 trillion of corporate bonds that could be at risk if there's a recession. It's also expressed concerns about this reach for yield that is going on at these very low interest rates. Do you see either of these things as key risks when it comes to generating the kind of market event, the kind of credit event that we saw in 0708? Uh, <coughs> let, me, let me describe the corporate, okay? Um, what's happened is corporate balance sheets, for a variety of reasons, have <laughs> borrowed a lot of money. As interest rates went down, a lot of money's available, and the return on equity was higher than the return, on the cost of funds. There has been a lot of buying, leveraging up. And there's been a market developing, like in the form of the leveraged loan market, in which essentially you can borrow money with hardly any interest rate, and almost the promise that you will never have to pay back principal because you'll keep rolling it over and over and over. Mm -hmm. Then they're doing that because of a spread. So the notion is like you can borrow the money and, and if you don't have to roll over the principal, you don't have any interest, you don't have much in the way of debt service payments. So now you look at that and you say, that's pretty wild, that's pretty crazy. Um, and that is, there are elements of that existing. And of course, but there's the central bank on that who will sort of take care of all that and because they'll provide the money and they'll, and so we have, and then we have the negative interest rate environment. Um, and so those extremities that we're reaching are not such that you're as likely to have a debt crisis in terms of, I look at the debt service payments, but you have a lot of, op you've, you've limited, you, you've reached the limits almost of that being able to happen. And then you have those obligations. So that creates this big sag more than it's likely to create a big bust. Yeah, I don't know about that. I definitely think uh, the bust is gonna come and it's not, maybe it won't be because of corporate bonds, but it, it, it's, it sounds like, um, sounds like some people out there believe that it's gonna be one of the many factors to this next recession. So 
let's get back to inverted yield curve. Now that you understand everything that is going on and how these other factors are at play, is this inverted yield curve suggesting recession around the corner? Well, if we look at the data past yield curve inversions in the United States, we can see a big difference between the 10-year and the two-year Treasury yields going back to 1976. And I'll put all these charts here in the uh, show notes. But yeah, you can see this uh, recession happen every single time, uh, most notably here in 2006 when actually, I'm sorry, it was actually 2005. So it was actually December 27th, 2005 when the inversion happened. Right. And then the the end of that inversion was uh, March 29th, 2006. And so at that point, the recession started in January 1st, 2008. And so if you look at the most recent one here recently, we have August 27th, 2019, the beginning of this inversion. And then uh, the end of the inversion was August 29th, 2019. So as almost every recession previously, you can see that the recession started within the next 12 to 18 months. And this goes far back as 1978. You can see this. And how often did the yield curve invert and no recession followed within two years of the first inversion. It's never happened. It's it's always been going into a recession that we see this. And um, this is the scary part. This is the part that um, when you look at data and you look at analysis on this subject, you, you come to realize that um, everything's t- pointing towards that, that direction. So uh, this is something I wanted y'all to be aware of. And uh, even with us getting outside of this Um, inverted yield curve, we still could potentially fall back down into it. And uh, if it happened again, it wouldn't be the first time. So just as much as they're doing these repos here over the next, uh, I think it's like four or five months or whatever it's going to be until um, just as high as the market can go, we could start seeing that inverted yield curve occur again and steepen. And then that doesn't necessarily mean the recession's around the corner. It just means that it's steepened again. And so doesn't matter how many times this yield curve inverts, it's going to place us. I mean, the the actual indications of this happening for recession is already on the board at this point. There's really no way that gets off the board. And I think what we're seeing here is the Fed is trying everything that they possibly can to postpone it uh, uh, to the point of you know, kicking the can down to future generations, which sucks, right? So we'll see how this all shakes out. I do know one thing when it comes to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and how all this fits in. I did a Twitter poll this past weekend and I asked a lot of my Twitter followers exactly what what was it? What do you think is going to spark the next big bull run after the halving? And so I put on there Bitcoin stock to flow, right? People think that it's inevitable. Uh, We also have a total recession meltdown. I put that as a a possibility. I put Facebook Facebook Libra as a possible, you know, bull run after the halving. Uh, DeFi was another one that I I definitely think is going to lead to the next uh, bull run. But the vast majority of people chose total recession meltdown. People think that as soon as a recession happens, Bitcoin will go up. 
I don't necessarily be, believe that. Um, I'm probably in the uh, minority vote on that, uh, just because we've looked at uh, our Bitcoin recession episode, and we actually looked at what could possibly happen. And so my kind of, at the beginning, I was like, yeah, without actually researching it, I was like, yeah, of course, total recession, Bitcoin's going to win. But actually, Bitcoin wins when the Fed prints more money. Uh, and then it kind of, kind of, you know, kind of, shaves off after after a bit but more bad news of recession helps bitcoin right and when you have a total recession we don't know bitcoin's never been tested during that time but i will say um we've looked at it we've researched it and it looks like it's not going to go that way <laughs> i could be wrong i hope i am i would love to see bitcoin go to a million dollars because of a recession i don't think that's going to happen um but i do know one thing though and this is probably another thing that most people aren't saying is that I think if a recession were to happen, and I, I think if after I've researched that, if I am proven to be right that Bitcoin's actually not going to spike during recession, it'll probably it'll probably you know not help. It will not help Bitcoin at all. If anything, it'll probably fall a little bit. Um, if if I'm indeed right about that, um, I don't think we see another mega bull run until t- at least 2024. At that point, so it's going to be an interesting you know couple years. To see how all this shakes out because um, nothing's definite in this space. And from one month, it almost seems one week to the next, we're seeing completely different takes on this. But it's just because uncertainty in this global market that we're in is at an all-time high. Um, like you heard Ray Dalio say, it's not since the 1930s we've seen this type of political climate, which is definitely true. So just a lot to think about, a lot to mull over, but something that you guys should definitely um, keep in the back of your head. Okay. You know, to be quite honest with you, um, and I've talked about this in past episodes, uh, I'm a big believer in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, uh, so much so that I've, I've, uh, I've put, um, a significant amount of time resources and money uh, towards that, right? So if there is anybody that wants to see Bitcoin succeed in this next recession, Bitcoin fight its true test, right? Born out of the recession, now attempts to rescue us from the next recession. Um, I want to see Bitcoin succeed. I want that, you know, Bitcoin OG (laughs) take to kind of break through. And uh, if we can see that, if that happens, if Bitcoin gets tested during this next recession and it lives and not only lives, but it thrives during it, well, then I think we can all put and the vast majority of people in the world can put that whole Bitcoin is a scam. Bitcoin is a Ponzi scheme to rest because at that point we've just solidified Bitcoin as true and enduring store value.